Hello, and welcome to episode 147 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Jessica Graham, Strategic Policy Advisor at Interpol's Environmental Security Program, where they work to combat wildlife trafficking globally. She's a former senior advisor for the U.S. Department of State at the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs. Jessica, how are you doing today? Good. Thank you. Excellent. First question I'd like to pose to you is, what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Great. Well, thanks for having me on. And yes, I am currently working on the Global Wildlife Program for the Environmental Security Program within Interpol. Um, As my former role at State Department, I spent um, several years working on, as on the civil servant side, to... uh, to manage and develop programs uh, globally from uh, a non-existent wildlife trafficking and environmental crime program to one that is now a $40 million a year program. Mm -hmm. And um, so saving wildlife, but from the crime side. Interesting. How is it that one becomes involved in saving wildlife? I noticed that you had an interest in international affairs in school. How did you transition to Department of State and getting involved in this particular issue of combating uh, illegally trafficked uh, exotic animals? Yeah, so actually, uh, when I, in in 2012, I I was working with the Law Enforcement Bureau for, since 2010, and uh, within that, the the beauty of, of working for what was known internally as the Drugs and Thugs Bureau is that for every interest you may have, there's a criminal activity posed behind it. Uh, my interest in background in environmental policy, um, then I realized there was no mention of the word environment in the corridors of the Drugs and Thugs Bureau. So uh, actually, the Secretary of State at the time, Hillary Clinton, before her departure, um, she had left behind a legacy that actually paved my career on the issue of wildlife trafficking. Um, I had just gone to Central Africa after a massacre of forest elephants um, in the neighboring state of Cameroon. We were holding, I had pulled together a workshop for combating wildlife trafficking regionally with a number of countries there in attendance, um, law enforcement and, and international organizations, non-governmental organizations had pulled together to try to apply the 30 years of the Law Enforcement Bureau's background on traditional crime sets and apply them to developing uh, law enforcement responses to address this issue of wildlife trafficking. Shortly thereafter, Secretary Clinton, uh, former Secretary Clinton, pulled together um, a call to action at the highest levels, elevating this issue and even calling upon for a World Wildlife Day, which is now March 3rd and and something I'm I'm working towards uh, within Interpol. So that... that, um, that was her legacy issue paved my career to focus on wildlife trafficking. Interesting. So, well, maybe for the benefit of our listeners who don't know, can you take a moment to just speak about what's the problem? What is wildlife trafficking and why is it a problem? Obviously, if you eat beef, if you have, if you wear a leather shoe, if you had a chicken nugget, um, you know, there's been animals that have been moved. What's the difference between that and what you're talking about, and why is what you're talking about a problem? Right. So we're not talking about the traditional meats that um, that we in the U.S. eat, whether it's chicken nuggets or, or a steak. Um, we're, we're talking about the massive poaching scheme. 
scale, the massive scope and scale of poaching and trafficking of wildlife. You're seeing a $20 billion industry crop up. It certainly hasn't cropped up overnight, but it's become much more organized, much more uh, sophisticated and complex. Transnational organized criminal groups are facilitating this and they're moving a lot of whether it's ivory from elephants or rhino horn across continents. Um, and so uh, looking at the issue of, of, of not the one-off poacher or, or the sustainable livelihood impact of, 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 of communities uh, in, for u- u- utilizing bushmeat, for example, in, in parts of Africa, we're talking about the sophistication and the organized crime that's going on at the massive scale in Africa. Largely, we've looked at the megafauna and then the supply chain following it through to places in Southeast Asia. So it's a combination. Uh, well, first of all, before I even ask that, are you always killing the animals? For instance, with ivory, if you take a tusk, do you, does that mean you necessarily kill the animal? Yes. So these products, because they're so lucrative, there's a uh, and a low risk of detection and a high reward criminal activity. Um, these, the, you know, ivory goes in the black market for 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 quite a lot and. Uh, Things like rhino horn is 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 more expensive than uh, drugs or gold in some cases by its own very weight. So we are seeing uh, criminals engaged on this. And yes, I mean, um, there was a, a survey done by an NGO many years back about um, they they actually interviewed folks in in um, Chinese citizens and 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 asked you know did you know that these beautiful carvings that you have and openly in the marketplace that that this is an elephant's death um what happens is they have to deface the elephant and so they kill it and take out the tusks um and it's it's quite a massive overhaul because these are magnificent large creatures um and it's um and the end result we tend to get very detached so yeah, we are talking about, you know, um, the Convention on International Trade for Endangered Species has is the international framework um, that, uh, if you will, rate ranks the endangeredness of, of such species. So we're looking at endangered, critically and, and endangered and protected species. So it's basically the idea with poaching is that it combines two basic elements killing an animal and then transporting it across international boundaries. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, similar to animals know no national borders, uh, neither do criminals. And so what we've tried to do, uh, what I've tried to do is is get, engage, and garner the attention and support of the law enforcement mm-hmm. so that we can be steps ahead of the criminals who are, who are taking and... Um, taking these populations of such species and decimating them. I mean, you're looking at numbers where we could we could potentially not see uh, an elephant or, or even a rhino in the wild in a decade if the poaching rates continue at, at the stance that they are now. So, and so it sounds like the primary motivation for the poachers is monetary, and you'd say that your, well, and let me ask you, is the primary motivation to prevent this poaching to prevent possible future extinction of the species, or are there other reasons, for instance, a balanced ecosystem that also would uh, support efforts to curb poaching? Yeah, I think uh, from one standpoint, obviously, to um, to keep the survival of such species um, 
from from not being becoming extinct but on another um you know we've seen the attention of governments uh across the country but or across the globe but specifically i'm thinking in africa where some of these governments uh ecotourism revenue is 13% of their G- GDP. Mm-hmm. Now that becomes an economic issue for a government to seize and, and, t- and take action on such an issue. Then there's the security angle, right? Uh, having poachers coming in on, on horseback uh, in these massive, mostly unregulated bor- porous borders and coming in with weapons and um, and engaging on these criminal activities of mm-hmm. poaching and trafficking and the corruption that it fuels through ports and borders and land checkpoints. That is a is a, another angle that governments have been interested in taking action for. Um, so, so we've, you know, I've felt quite lucky to work on such an issue largely because in the U.S. many uh, people do not realize, but the U.S. is a major demand market, maybe not for the same products that other countries um, are, are trafficking, for example, for rhino or, or ivory, but but we in the U.S. Are, are a major consumer of both legal and illegal wildlife trade, largely coming out of Latin America. Uh, could you give an example of what is illegal that we demand in the U.S. market? Uh, yeah, uh, the U.S. market demands uh, predominantly exotic birds for pet for the pet trade and reptiles for the accessories uh, consumption hmm. um, so I wanted to ask about your jurisdiction you said Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State for the United States established um, some sort of program that enabled you to work on uh, you, you were you became part of a presidential task force for combating wildlife trafficking while you were at Department of State. You became a negotiator for the UN Crime Commission. What gives you? What gave you jurisdiction, for instance, to go into Cameroon or Mozambique or wherever else you might go around the world to uh, to, to try to prevent? Do you have to have an invitation from these countries, or is there some international treaty that gives you jurisdiction? How is it that a U.S. Department of State official would be able to work on what are inherently dom- what are dom- in some ways domestic issues for them, some of these African nations? Mm-hmm. Well, State Department being the foreign policy arm, if you will, um, uh, in our diplomatic engagement um, in my former capacity was was to engage with countries. And um, this issue, it's highly supported um, bipartisan uh, ship support in the U.S. Um, it's provided a lot of funding for the U.S. Um, in, in, in the tens of millions of dollars to the U.S. government to work on this issue internationally and governments requesting and needing the help because it's not a one nation can do it by themselves it is a really truly global initiative that needs the help of of all countries to work together um, because it is um, a borderless crime if you will Um, and and within that capacity um, state department leads on many uh, international frameworks and treaties and through, um, I mentioned earlier, the CITES um, Treaty, which is is the international framework for uh, endangered species. But in addition to that, there are other crime-related, anti-crime-related forums that the U.S. State Department works in. So I I was uh, a negotiator um, for the U.N. Crime Commission, where we elevated amongst 
I mean, this was a consensus-based forum, so you had over 20 countries uh, co-sponsor it, meaning they not only just supported the resolution, but they really believed in it. Um, and that resolution was pivotal pivotal in 2013 when the uh, the U.S. and um, and Peru co-sponsored and put forward a resolution to elevate wildlife trafficking as a serious crime. And that means something in the U.S. system. That means that if it's treated as a serious crime, there are minimum penalties. There's mutual legal assistance. There's joint investigations that can be conducted across national borders internationally or regionally. And these um, aspects um, were then elevated into other resolutions. For example, the UN General Assembly just recalled that resolution um, last fall and, uh, and for the first time really raised the profile of wildlife trafficking as a serious crime. So um, that's kind of the jurisdiction and the engagement of, 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 of what I was able to do within um, State Department capacity. So it sounds like uh, this illegal trafficking of exotic animals could both break in, could break international treaties, could be against uh, United Nations resolutions, could be against domestic policies in these nations, and also um, are, are to agreeing to these terms are incentivized by foreign aid that the United States provides, and then um, also it's in those countries' interests in terms of promoting ecotourism and reducing domestic violence and corruption in their own government, in order, those are all incentives for them to cooperate with um, the State Department's efforts to curb uh, international poaching. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. There is a, an economic uh, conservation and a security, um, a health even, um, risk to, to governments and why they have seized this issue um, so, so much. So, uh, I guess now you're with Interpol. Can you explain to our listening audience who may not know what Interpol is and how your role there is slightly different from your role at the United States Department of State? Yeah, so Interpol is the premier in, uh, international police organization. Um, it has 190 member countries, and um, it, its priorities are to fight uh, terrorism and cybercrime and other transnational crimes mm -hmm. um, and building law enforcement cooperation, strengthening information sharing and um, assisting member countries. So uh, in my new capacity, I'm no, I, I'm no longer representing one government, but I'm representing 190 and I'm supporting 190 member countries. And in that capacity, we work um, across the globe under the Environmental Security Program, which has had had is one of the newer programs, if you will, as in it's been around since 2010. Mm -hmm. um, and in and in that, we work on various projects to um, combat illicit fisheries crimes, um, forest crimes, and wildlife crimes. And so, it's a very similar role in the sense that I'm continuing to build law enforcement capacity through training and investigative support to member countries to work and focus on this issue. So now we know a little bit about what poaching is, why it's a problem, and who has jurisdiction to try to fix that problem. The next question that might come to listeners' minds is, 
well, how do we prevent this poaching of megafauna, whether it be whales or elephants, whether it be cockatoos or, or snakes? How do we prevent uh, the illicit trading of exotic animals across international borders? Yeah, I think um, preventing wildlife trafficking, it's such a complex issue that it requires a multi-stakeholder approach. Um, I think one aspect that was quite a, a shining star within the U.S. government is within the Presidential Task Force on Combating Wildlife Trafficking. You had 17 government agencies around the table talking about this regularly and, and coordinating. And you had the, the U.S. government donors coordinating on their efforts. And so I think making effective and efficient use of the resources, um, having a multi-stakeholder um, engagement, mm-hmm. and, and really taking seeing that this issue is a serious criminal issue and that you know time is not on our side we we this is not like a drugs issue where where things can can synthetically be reproduced by criminals and and their networks but this is we're working on a finite resource a natural resource that's important for natural heritage for cultural purposes um, and and um, and for conservation purposes, um, as well as, as our security interests. So, so I think everyone has a role to play, and um, and uh, from from every angle, quite frankly. So there's a colonialist history, especially in in Africa, but also in Southeast Asia and many other parts of the world, of extractive industries, um, including, for instance, gems. And whereas diamonds may be mined in Africa, you now actually have um, artificial creation of those uh, of diamonds in laboratories, just like cocaine is made in South America. You can now artificially create it. Is it impossible to artificially create ivory? Um, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but I think it's um, it is you're going down a slippery slope with that. Um, we, at in the international community, um, through CITES, approved one-off sales of ivory to, in, in the late 2007-2008 timeframe to Japan and China, thinking perhaps the supply-demand equation, um, Economy 101, that we would, we would flood the market and, and potentially would assist with you know, reducing uh, the poaching aspect. Um, and we saw that that did not happen, it actually had a reverse effect. So um, it it further drove an increase in poaching, um, even with the increase of of the items on the market. So what what the U.S. and over a dozen countries now across the globe have been doing through U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, who who is the lead on this, um, is uh, to take the the stockpile uh, from the seized ivory um, and rhino horn to some to some degrees, and burn or destroy it so that it doesn't go back on the black market and flood. Um, some some criminals are hoping that this that they that that these species do become extinct so the prices go even higher. And so we want to prevent this. And again, we want to get one step ahead of the criminals and um, creating such. Uh, Creating such synthetic items just wouldn't, you, you could potentially flood an interest, a market that hasn't yet been interested, but then becomes interested um, uh, if, if there were synthetic equivalents out there.
Clearly, many of the individuals who may be poachers, obviously, they're international cartels and great wealth, and, and there may be not much you can do about them except try to catch them and, and incarcerate them. But clearly, many individuals in these countries are quite poor, and they're trying to find a way to get by. Is there any cooperation with Interpol, between Interpol and uh, humanitarian organizations or organizations that seek to build local infrastructure, um, economic capacity, such that uh, these individual farmers have an alternative means of supporting their families um, from illegally poaching? Yeah, I mean, I would point to uh, government agencies such as USAID and in, in, in the U.S. where they are um, building um, the livelihoods aspect um, into their conservation approaches mm -hmm. um, to combating wildlife trafficking. And I know USAID does a lot of that type of work. Um, community-based solutions. Uh, we and Interpol work with our police and our, our law enforcement, our park rangers, the investigators, and the prosecutors, um, you know, encouraging stiffer fines and penalties for the poachers and traffickers and encur encouraging a lot of times, you know, an arrest or a lenient fine just means they're going to go right back out the next day to poach. And so what our hope is is that they're, that there's a stiffer penalty in order to ensure that it's a, a strong enough deterrent mm -hmm. to uh, engage on such criminal activities and then ensuring that uh, prosecutors and judges, judges are taking these cases on wildlife trafficking and they're giving um, sentencing and, and there are the arrests are leading to convictions um, or, or to prosecutions and then convictions. So when we talk about prosecutors, judges... And, uh, and, and prisons, are we talking about the International Criminal Court in The Hague in the Netherlands, or who, who do these judges and prosecutors work for, and where are these jails located, and who has uh, ownership of those prisons? Yeah, so um, I would say not the International Criminal Court, but we are looking at you know national sovereignty and, and nations and their courts um, at the federal or, or provincial state levels that are taking on these cases. So in the Cameroonian um, example, you may have a Cameroonian prosecutor and a Cameroonian judge trying to send a Cameroonian poacher into a Cameroonian prison. Yes. Okay. Yes. And then obviously Interpol has um, a number of, of notices they have uh, for, for, you know, root basically to investigate or to arrest. So we have purple notices and red notices that have been issued for wildlife traffickers um, seeking their arrest and, um, and identifying their modus operandi um, to, to assist member countries in locating uh, these criminals. So as we approach the end of this podcast, I'd like to ask you to reflect for a moment for the benefit of our listeners about your time in public service uh, why you find that it's important to do the work that you do um, working in law enforcement uh, to curb uh, wildlife trafficking around the world, and then what you hope your legacy will be, um, what the effect of all of your efforts will be uh, throughout the course of your lifetime on, on the world. Yeah, thanks, Jordan. Um, I think... You know, I you know I think it's important to do what you love and love what you do and have an impact while doing it, and, and that's why I was 
quite interested um, in hearing about your podcasts. Um, so I think that's an important um, aspect to the work I do. Um, I hope that, you know, to date we have not seen, we've seen small successes. And I hope that um, this is a lifetime commitment for me. And I hope that uh, it will continue to have an impact on getting those criminals behind bars so they cannot um, take the lives of, of these critically threatened and endangered species and um, and that we will have future generations that will know what an elephant looks like in the wild and will know how a rhino um, uh, lives in the wild as well. And, and I think um, it's the work that I do every day that, that gives me hope um, from the law enforcement side that that there are champions um, out there to to assist in this kind of whole of community approach. And that has been Jessica Graham, Strategic Policy Advisor at Interpol's Environmental Security Program and former Senior Advisor to the United States Department of State Bureaus of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, who speaks about... Um, combating international criminal uh, criminal uh, wildlife trafficking rings, uh, what she calls drugs and thugs. Um, she goes around and she finds that it's beneficial uh, to local individuals around the world, to uh, small governments in developing countries around the world, and, all, and, and of course to the peoples of, of all nations to curb this uh, demand and curb the supply chain for international uh, Ill illegal wildlife trafficking. She hopes through her work to uh, really, I mean, public service for her, often on Public Interest Podcasts we speak about benefiting humans. And of course, she sees her work as perpetuating species for the benefit of future generations of, uh, who can see those animals in their, in their actual habitat, preventing extinction. Um, but most directly, she's she's and she's helping she's helping these animals. So it's a new way of conceptualizing on the public interest. Because of course, in many in many cases, when you have politicians on this show, you're able to help communities and constituents who are able to express their gratitude. And of course, that's not possible. These animals cannot express their gratitude to Jessica. But again, looking at the uh, proportion of GDP that's dependent on ecotourism, which is threatened by poaching, uh, looking at the corruption and violence that's incentivized by poaching, uh, I think you find many benefits throughout society uh, that accrue owing to Jessica's work, and as a result, uh, she seeks to make a difference in the world by uh, seeking to make sure that we're in balance with many species uh, and that the rule of law is abided by uh, throughout the world. So Jessica, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And this has been episode 147 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. Remember to subscribe at publicinterestpodcast.com. Listen on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And should you wish to leave a message for Jessica, you can call 240-630-0380, and that voicemail will be conveyed to her. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.